I'm not great at reading books, not like some of you guys uh, who run through books really quickly. It takes me a real while to, to get through a book. But the book I'm working through uh, just now is a book written by this guy here, Cameron Cole. On November the 11th, 2013, Cameron's worst happened. Uh, he was a youth pastor and he was on an overnight camp with some young people when he got a phone call from his wife. She told him the worst news imaginable. His three-year-old son had suddenly died. For no apparent reason, this little boy had just stopped breathing in his sleep. And in this book, Cameron is very honest with the, about the overwhelming sadness and grief and all the emotional struggles and pain that he and his wife went through as a result of this tragedy. But this book is not one of hopelessness and despair. In fact, it's called, Therefore, I Have Hope. Therefore, I Have Hope. In his introduction, this is what he writes. My intent is that God's Word will offer you the most essential thing that you need in the face of your worst. Hope. Hope is difficult to define until you are starving for it. Hope is the substance that assures you that life is worth living when you simply can't find a reason to make it through the next day. Hope is that expectation that maybe things will get better down the road. Hope is what tells you that no matter how bad it seems, redemption is possible. Hope is that little light at the end of the tunnel that suggests that all of, his, of, all of this mis- misery is temporary when you're desperate for patience. In reality, all hope flows out of the person of Jesus Christ. So to the person for whom life's buzzsaw has not yet come, I intend this book to prepare you for the dark night which no human can elude. To the person dwelling in the gutter of misery, I hope this book grants you comfort and companionship. To the non-Christian, I pray that you can see the unrivaled hope that Christianity offers. Regardless of who you are, written for one purpose, that you may have hope. This is the power of the, the good news of Jesus. It can give us real and secure hope, even in the most difficult and the most challenging of circumstances. And this is what the church in Thessalonica needed. When Paul wrote his first letter to them, they were a young church going through an incredibly difficult time. And so he wrote to them, He wrote to them about faith and about love and about hope. So we're going to spend some weeks in this letter. So I want to just read the first three verses 
of this letter to us uh, this morning. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 3. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Like in all of Paul's New Testament letters, he started here by following the convention of his day. So this letter starts by him writing the name of the writer, the names of whom he's writing the letter to, a word of greeting, and a word of thanks. But this opening also introduces us to many of the truths that this letter contains. Verse 3 especially, that contains one of Paul's most famous trilogies. Faith, love and hope. And because this letter is one of the first letters that Paul wrote that we have in the the Bible, written about 50 AD, this is one of the earliest uses of what many people say is an amazing summary of what Christianity is really all about. Faith, love, and hope. So first of all, in his prayers for his church, Paul remembered their work produced by faith. Faith is really at the heart of what Christianity is all about. Because it's only through faith that we can be saved. Paul was writing this letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that church that we use lots of times these days, that word church is from the Greek word ecclesia. And that was a word that was used in those days in many different contexts. It simply meant an assembly or a gathering of people called out to meet together. But what made this church that Paul was writing to so special was that this gathering of people were in God the Father. They were in God the Son. This was a group of people who were living in a vital, organic union with God. They were experiencing new life in Him. They were rooted in Him. They were living in Him. They were a community of people who were living in a close, personal, intimate relationship with God. But how did this happen? How did this group of people 
become the church? How did they connect to God in this way? Well, this was not because of who they were, nor was it because of what they'd done. When Paul arrived in Thessalonica, he preached the gospel in the synagogue for three weeks. And Luke records that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Now that means that some of the people in this church were Jews. They had grown up being committed to obeying the Old Testament law. But that wasn't what connected them to God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. We cannot be united to God through our family heritage or through good living or through keeping religious rules and rituals. Nobody can. The law, the, the, the Ten Commandments, all of the rules, all of the rituals will never unite somebody to God. Other people in this church were Gentiles, they were Greeks. They used to be pagans and involved in idolatry and in immorality that was rife in this city. But that past history didn't stop them from or prevent them from being connected to God. In fact, Paul says in verse 9, you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So good living didn't bring them into this relationship with God. And bad living didn't prevent them from having it. Instead, all of these people, both Jew and Gentile, non-Jew, were called together into this relationship with God by grace. That's why Paul is grace and peace. It is through grace, God's undeserved gift, that we can experience real peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace within ourselves. True reconciliation with God, true unity with other people, true harmony within ourselves. And that's only because God paid the price in full. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid in full the price of our salvation so God could offer this as a free gift to you and to me. But we can only receive this gift, this gift of grace, if we put our faith in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. 
And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. This church was a community of people from all different backgrounds and behaviours who'd simply believed in Jesus. And as a result of that faith, they were completely forgiven. They were declared righteous in God's sight. And they were brought into a new life with God. They were saved by God's grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. But just notice in verse 3, Paul was not just celebrating their faith. He was celebrating their work produced by faith. Their faith in Jesus had changed their lives. In the original language, original Greek language, this word work carries with it the idea of vocation, their career, their calling. So Paul was celebrating that their faith in Jesus had become their vocation. It was their calling in life. It was their lifestyle. For these believers, faith in Jesus was not just something they believed. It was something that they lived out in every aspect of their lives. And this is so crucial for each one of us as well, isn't it? We are saved by faith in Jesus and not by our works. But real saving faith always works. We're not saved by our works, but real saving faith always works. This is what Paul wrote about in James, or sorry, James wrote about in James chapter 2. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied action, is dead. If we claim to come to Jesus, but our lives are exactly the same, the Bible would say that's probably not saving faith. Because real faith will always impact what we do. Real faith will always alter our attitudes or reorganize our priorities or gradually transform our lives. So how we live is the test of the vitality of our faith. How we live is the evidence of what we're really convinced about, what we really believe in. Now, of course, 
Let me be really clear. This does not believe, this does not mean that if we are a Christian, if we believe in Jesus, then we'll live perfectly obedient lives. It does not mean that. None of us live like that. This is a lifelong process of transformation. But it does mean that if our faith in Jesus is real, then we should be seeking to live this out more and more each day. This is God's plan for our lives. And this is God's purpose for it. That we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. That if we are followers of Jesus, then we should become, we should be becoming more and more like Him. In fact, this is one of the reasons for Paul writing this letter. Yes, he rejoiced that these believers were living out their faith in Jesus. But he desperately wanted to teach them and encourage them to do this more and more each day. So in chapter 4 of our letter, verse 1, he says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And one of the key ways, one of the key things that Paul longed to see grow in these, Christ, these Christians' lives was love. In his prayers for his church, this church, Paul remembered their labor prompted by love. We'll see love expressed throughout this letter. Paul and this church really loved each other. They really cared for each other. Maybe that's why he introduced himself so simply here in verse 1. At the start of most of his letters, in fact, at the start of the, all the other letters apart from his second letter to this church, 2 Thessalonians, Paul introduced himself, Paul the Apostle, Paul the Servant, Paul the Prisoner. But here, he just simply gave his name and the names of his, of his partners in the Gospel. Paul, Silas and Timothy. There may be one reason for this, is maybe because his apostleship, his role in their lives wasn't being challenged. They knew he was the apostle. He knew that there was, he was their apostle, so they, he didn't need to express that. But I think it also shows the, the level of mutual love and care that existed between Paul and this church. It's expressed here in this introduction and in how he prayed for them. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. And later we'll see Paul, how we heard from Timothy, that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we long to see you. This church loved Paul and Paul loved the church. And this kind of love 
is a key evidence of real faith in Jesus. Love in the Bible is the summary of God's law. Love is the first aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love is the way that Jesus said that the world will recognize if we are his disciples or not. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. But this love is not easy. The kind of love that Paul talked about here is a really challenging kind of love. It's not primarily a feeling of attraction or closeness with people that we we like or whom we naturally care about or connect with. It's not restricted to those that we who are nice to us or who are considerate of us or who are kind to us. And it's not limited to just being pleasant or polite or saying nice things to other, another person. The love that Paul is talking about here is a love that is unrestricted, that is unconditional, that is unlimited. This is a love that is hard work. That's why Paul celebrated their labor prompted by love. This love was an active, undeserved, a sacrificial kind of love. It was a commitment to act for the good of others, no matter what the cost. And so this was not something that they could just produce in themselves. Like us, this church were far too selfish, far too self-centered and sinful to be able to love people in this way, in themselves, in their own strength. But instead, this love was the result of the supernatural power of God in their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, You yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. This church was living in a life-changing relationship with God. With God the Father and God the Son. They were trusting in God and so they were being changed by God. And as a result, they were characterized by love. They were in relationship with God and so they were becoming more and more a loving people. That's because God is love. This is who He is. This is His essential nature. God is love. And His love is an unrestricted love, an unconditional love, an unlimited love. It's an active, undeserved, and sacrificial kind of love. 
It's most clearly demonstrated to us at the cross of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 5 and 8, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the definition of love. Love that acts for the benefit of others, no matter what the cost, and no matter what kind of person they are. And so if we are living in Jesus, and He is living in us, then this is going to be an increasing characteristic in our lives. We will love others because we're loved by God. Now, of course, none of us do it this perfectly. We are all a work in progress. But as we'll see later in this letter, through trusting in Jesus, God wants our love for others to grow more and more each day. And the Thessalonians here, they were committed to keep on doing this. They weren't going to give up in this process. The third aspect of his prayer for this church, Paul remembered their endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This church had shown amazing endurance in the middle of intense suffering. Thessalonica was one of the most important cities of its time. You'll see it kind of highlighted in red at the top of the the map there. It was a large Greek city, possibly about the number of about about 200,000 people. So it's a large city. And it's situation on one of the main Roman roads and also its major seaport meant it was an ideal place to establish a centre from which the gospel could spread out to the region. And so Paul, Silas and Timothy, they had travelled there during their, their second missionary journey. This was after their successful but painful visit to Philippi. In Philippi, they had been flogged and imprisoned. But God had set them free through a miraculous earthquake which led to an even more miraculous conversion of the Philippian jailer and his whole family. And so this mission team came to Thessalonica with a fresh reminder of the power of the gospel, but also the cost of sharing it. But that didn't weaken their commitment to share the gospel with the people of Thessalonica. But when people started to listen to Paul and Silas and started to believe in Jesus, some of the Jews in that city began to get jealous. And they stirred up a riot in the city and had some of the believers, the very new young believers, imprisoned. The charge was, as we read in Acts chapter 17, these men who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. They are defying Caesar's decrees, 
saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Now that situation became so dangerous that as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea, another town, where they continued their mission. But this opposition in Thessalonica was so intense that the people of Thessalonica weren't, they weren't uh, happy with that. They wouldn't give up easily. So they travelled to Berea, where Paul was preaching the gospel. And they stirred up the crowd there as well. So Paul had to leave Berea as well. So this was the situation of this church that this church was living in. They were all new believers. New Christians who had very recently trusted in Jesus. Maybe a matter of months. But the apostle who had led them to Christ had had to leave them on their own. And so now they were living in this large pagan city surrounded by immorality and idolatry. And they were living under the vicious attacks of the opponents of the gospel. And then in addition, some of their church had died. And they weren't sure what that meant for them. But the amazing thing is, Despite how difficult this was, despite of the intense, the severe suffering they were experiencing, this church hadn't given up. Paul here could celebrate their endurance. They were keeping on going. They were still committed to following Jesus. So how is that possible? How did these new believers find the patience and the perseverance and the long-suffering to keep going no matter how difficult their circumstances were? Well, it was because of the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, their circumstances were incredibly difficult. Their knowledge was incomplete. The support from other believers was limited. Their temptations were great. Their enemies were fierce. Their suffering was real. But their hope was unshakable. It was sure and it was certain. That's because this hope was not founded on self-confidence. It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't blind optimism. Rather, it was based on their faith in Jesus. They knew that one day Jesus would return for them. And Paul wrote this letter. To teach teach them more about this wonderful truth and encourage them to live more and more in the reality of that each day. To let this reality, let this truth transform their lives. 
And this is why we can have hope today. However challenging our circumstances, however difficult the people around us are, however intense our suffering, however weak and feeble we feel, we can stand in this sure and certain hope. If we've trusted in Jesus, then one day, Jesus is coming back for us. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. And as we'll hopefully see in this letter, God willing, this unshakable hope will not just comfort and encourage us in times of suffering. This unshakable hope will inspire us to live out our faith in Christ each day and empower us to keep on loving God and keep on loving others until Jesus returns. So this is my prayer as we start this, the study of this letter over the, and continue over the next couple of months. That like these Thessalonians, we will grow in our work produced by our faith in Jesus. That we will grow in our labor prompted by the love of Jesus. And that we'll grow in our endurance, inspired by our hope in Jesus.